Welcome to episode four of Keep Up Shut Up, the podcast that's aiming at the flag but occasionally just flies the green. I'm Tony Rushmer. And I'm Mike Morley, better known on the Stayshore Tour as the Llama. Now, this time of year, Tony, we would normally be caddying, but as uh, as things go, we're still stuck in isolation. Indeed. Bit frustrating, isn't it, not to be out and about on the fairways? But next best thing is to be talking golf with proper golf people. And we have two, yes, two cracking guests for our latest episode. First up, we've got a Masters winning caddy, Brendan McCartane. And then you've sorted us out a chat with David Shacklady. We'll come to Brendan in a moment, but let's focus on Shackers for a, a moment or two. He's a great pal of yours, isn't he, Mike? So it's only right you give us a bit of background on him. He is a, he is a really good friend of mine on tour, and the banter between Shackers and I is always really good. Um, but, you know, for all our guests listening, I'm going to take you to a town in West Lancashire near Liverpool, it's nine miles southeast of Southport, where Shackers has been plying his trade ever since the 1980s. Now, he's not, he's not necessarily a household name, but in that part of the world, he is an absolute legend. The legend of Ormskirk and surrounding areas. You know, David Shacklady, a great player, prolific winner on the PGA North region, and I'm not talking five or six wins. I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of wins. And then seriously, in 2017, he decides to go for his card at the dreaded uh, Q School in Pastana. He misses out in what is a gut-wrenching playoff. He then returns back to Ormskirk, thinks about it again and says, I'm doing this, comes back in 2018. He gets a card. Fantastic. But then he goes on to win three times. Uh, he wins in Russia, he wins in England, and he wins in France. So, you know, it's, it's an absolute fantastic story, and it's the reason why he's on. It will inspire many pros thinking of giving tour golf a go. But I was there in 2017. It, it was absolutely brutal. It was devastating. I've seen that hollow-looking player's eyes, and I've got first-hand experience of having a card in one hand and all it promises to losing everything in 30 minutes. And Marcus and I, Marcus Breer, we regularly play with Shackers. He's an absolute street fighter and we've had some great duels. But for listeners, you will hear fascinating insight into the other side of, of tour golf. And that's what I'm looking forward to, that sheer drive, determination, that edge you need to lift a trophy. But before that, Tony, we've got a double bubble. We've got a contact of yours on the pod. Tell us about Brendan. Yes, Brendan McCartain and I first met way back in the late 90s when I interviewed him for a golf magazine, what it was like to be a, a tour caddy. Um, we occasionally kept in touch and he did a couple of very good articles from a caddy's perspective for Golf Weekly, the magazine that I went on to work for. Anyway, he has enjoyed a very successful and long career as a tour cad. He was by Jose Maria Alathabal's side when the Spaniard won his second green jacket in 1999 and he's also worked a Ryder Cup, President's Cup, even an, an Olympics. So he has been there and done it when it comes to the caddy life and he's still very much in active service, currently working for 
Malaysia's Gavin Green, although COVID-19 has seriously limited competitive action in 2020. However, the fact that he is currently sidelined means that he's got time to come on the podcast and talk to us. Thanks for joining us, friends, and welcome to Keep Up Shut Up. Thanks for having me. No, you're very welcome. And I suppose we're going to roll roll back through the years. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, how on earth did you end up caddying on the European Tour all those years ago in 1994? By accident, really. Um, I was in my first job for seven years and that didn't work out. And I was looking for something else to do. And I uh, knew Glenn Ralph, who was playing a bit on the tour. And he said to me to come and try it for a few weeks. And that was it. Got hooked within a few weeks. I was off and running and wanted to do it. You know, I wasn't making any money, but didn't for a while, but uh, wanted to do it. Got the bug. Got the bug, yeah. Got the itch, got the bug. Well, take us take us through the years then. How did you sort of end up, you know, if you, if you joined as a caddy in 94, by 99 you're walking up those green, green fairways of Augusta with Jose Maria. How, how did that come about? How did you get that bag? You never think, you, you always, you know, a lot of us, if you get involved in caddying, you probably followed golf, played golf growing up, and we all watch all the, all the big tournaments every year and everybody and even when you start caddying having a chance to caddy in majors any of them is way way off you know it's a long way you know it's something you kind of think that maybe someday hopefully you know you, you but you, you've no idea when and where or who with or anything so um i've done a couple of opens um which was brilliant I mean, the first open i went to was it was just fantastic being at an open because I'd never been to watch one before anyway. So, and then, you know, having a chance to work for Jose was, so you knew you were going to have a chance to go and work in the majors that year was, uh, was great. Did he come to you? How does that thing kind of happen? I didn't really know him. Didn't know him at all, really. Been out with him a couple of times, but um, I had the job was going and I asked Sergio Gomez, who sadly passed away recently, who was his lifetime uh, manager, friend, um, and Maita, his wife, and they looked after him. Um, and I asked Sergio and and uh, Peter Mitchell, who was my boss at the time, who I'd been two years with, two great years. I was as close to Mitch as probably anybody I've ever worked for, on and off the course. He was he was a brilliant guy to be with, and um, he spoke to Jose on my behalf, which was which I think did it probably. Actually, him speaking to him on my behalf, um, and then got then got a chance to go and do it with him. So. so, so how long had you been in the gig when uh, when you went to caddy at Augusta, which I'm assuming was for the first time? Four months. Four months. Okay, so not long. Just trying to make the cut. That's what you're trying to do to begin with. First Masters. That's, I remember all I was thinking about. There was me, Eduardo, and myself. We caddied them for Miguel and Gal Jimenez. Obviously, they were very close friends. And we were both talking, it was both, it was, for both of us, it was our first Masters and um, just wanted to make the cut. Give us the lowdown on putting on the boiler suit for the first time. That's a bit of a caddy writer passage, isn't it? Put, pulling on the famous old white boiler suits. I don't know if it's a writer passage, but you kind of feel good about the fact that you're actually there caddying, you know, and it's all very new. You know, the way that the workings of it all, you've got a caddy house and, you know, and and they, they're brilliant in the locker rooms and you get the boiler suit put on every day and they put the sticker on your back and tap you on the back and off you go, go, go to work, you know, from your locker. Brendan, do you, get to, uh, do you get to keep the boiler suit after the event? No, no. Uh, you used to put your bib, your boiler suit into a big basket and get laundered. They had your size. 
you know, whatever that was. And um, then they used to, then you put the boiler suit on and then they'd come along and they'd put your patches, Velcro the patches onto your chest, your number and your number and your emblem and then your player's name on the back. So you keep the you can keep the Velcro strips, which is what a lot of people do, with your because it's got your number. Whatever number you register as, that's the number you have for the week, and then your player's name on the back. So you, you know, everyone keeps those. You could always nip to a painting and decorating shop and get a white boiler suit, couldn't you? And just pretend. You could. It, it'd probably <laughs> be a bit heavier, but yeah, you probably could. I expect some people have. So that white boiler suit and you walked up the 72nd hole with a two-shot lead. You must have known that your your man, catastrophe aside, was about to win a green jacket. What? Just tell us, sir. Uh, and, and listeners, what that was like? Not really, no. I, I mean, everyone's different, what you're thinking and what you say you thought you were thinking or whatever, but I wasn't thinking about anything. I was just thinking about you making a par. You know, that was making a par and making a par you knew, you knew was, was good. Making a bogey was good, but so you were thinking about just making a par. That tee shot on 18, it, even on the television, it, it, it looks, I mean, as, as 70 second hole goes, it's narrow. Yeah, it does look, 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 definitely look really narrow to me if I was trying to play it. But, I mean, uh, for them. But, the, you know, for him, he, he hit a one iron. That was his, I mean, he was the best one iron player in the world. Maybe him and Sandy Lyle, he was phenomenal. So that was always the play, even though that was the year that they'd actually started to lengthen the course. That was the first year. Because I remember Jose saying to me that they're making the course more for the longer hitters during the week because they that was the first year they changed it but we hit one iron off the off the last anyway and um yeah, hit a lovely shot there a lovely I made a lovely hit a lovely second shot and um when we walked up the last he waited and we started to walk and then we waited for he waited for Greg Norman so they walked up together which was really cool I mean he was so much in the moment where he was at you know just he said we'll just wait here so we waited and then they walked up together which was really nice then he had a look up at the leaderboard which obviously I'd already looked at. And uh, he said the nicest thing ever. He said, uh, we have three for it. Uh, I said, yes, you do. And he said, okay, well, then we'll make a par. And that was it. That was all that was said, you know, a couple of other things, but that was, the, you know, and that was it. Then his focus was just make a par. And uh, he managed to two-putt it and make a par. Can we dig down and say, you, you referenced that you played with Greg Norman in the last group that day. What are your memories of, of Masters Sunday? I mean, do you, do, you, do you get any sleep Saturday night? Because you were in the lead going into the... No, not much. I, I got, we, the, the thing that was fortunate was that for, for, for me, certainly not so much for him, but for me was that we played the last group on the Saturday as well. Um, and Greg Norman and Lee Jansen were ahead of us uh, on the Saturday. So you had a, you had a feeling of doing that because I'd never done that before. You know, I'd, I'd had some success, but it's a completely different animal. And it's the unknown. So, you know, for me, it helped a lot, the fact that I'd already caddied in the last group on Saturday, and now we're going to caddy the last group again on the Sunday. So, okay, it's different, but, I, you know, it helped the fact that I'd done it the day before, definitely. And the, and the, the Sunday itself, um, do you eat much? Do you fit? Do you go out on the course? Do you do your homework? Or you, do, you, do you head down to Amen Corner just to have a look-see? I went up there early on the Sunday morning to meet Sergio, his manager again, and because uh, he was changing the plane tickets because we were going to finish later, and just gave me a little pep talk, and um, for about ten minutes, and and that was it. And then I went out for a little wander, and I, I looked at a few pins, but I didn't go around and look at because I just wanted to go out and just go for a walk, just go out there. It was my first time there anyway. You know, you couldn't 
it was lovely to be out on the golf course because it's only one week and that's it, it's gone, you know. Incredible to think that it was your first go-round Augusta as well. So, I mean, it must the anticipation must have been phenomenal. Look at who you're working for, you know. I mean, you're working for a guy who was one of the best at playing that golf course and he was coming back from injury, but he was starting to find a little bit of form and he was way under the radar. He was 80 to 1 maybe at the beginning of the week, but not in his eyes he wasn't. Mm. But, um, you know, his, man- his manager, Sergio, told me, I remember when I was, you know, he was struggling a little bit. And, you know, you start thinking about what's coming up and all the rest of it. And he said, don't worry. He said, when he walks through the gates, yeah, he said, he's an inch taller. <laughs> I remember him saying that to me. And I thought, oh, OK, right. Yeah, OK. Yeah. So, and he was right. Fantastic. And one last Augusta question from me. Not necessarily about 99, really. Just tell us about clubbing into the 12th there. It's, it's a, it must be a bit of a caddy rise or fall moment, isn't it? We all know that getting clubbing wrong there is catastrophic, just from watching so many final Sundays. But tell us about that hole and the, the, the wind element and how you just got to try and get it right. Well, I think it depends on who you're working for to begin with, because if you're working for a great iron player, like as I, as I was fortunate enough to be doing so, it makes it a lot easier. But it's still hard. But, you know, it depends who you're working for. Um, and sometimes you can get it right and everything seems right and you both are thinking exactly the same thing and you commit to it and it still doesn't work out because with the nature of the place, you know, the wind can bounce around if it is windy. Um, and make it unpredictable where literally the ball you can hit a ball and then it's it can almost literally change just at the moment you're going to hit it a little bit which might make a difference of three or four yards or five yards and that can make obviously a huge difference to what the outcome is but I think you just got to keep picking it I've been on that tee a few times when everybody's hit a different club you know to what they you know to, to one another and not just because they don't hit it all the same distance because it can change and another day you go there and it's it's actually quite straightforward and the next day you go there, it's an absolute nightmare. You're thinking of you're thinking, gee, whiz, by the time you get around to twelve with this wind, this is going to be brutal. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's it, you just got to keep. It's just it is another hole. It's a make or break hole at certain times, of course. And we've seen that, and you know, we've all watched that over the years. But there's a lot of make or break holes out there, not just that one. Yeah, yeah, that was that's why we love Augusta because there are so many moments where it could be uh, triumph for the other one. Words can never do it justice. I think even when you watch the TV and then you actually get to go there, because obviously we only used to see the back nine, didn't we, on the television? We never used to see the front nine at all for a long time. And you see, you know, when you, you've been there and you, when you actually go out on the golf course and you look around and you see the people coming in first thing in the morning and they're just all spreading around with their chairs and everything. I mean, it's just amazing. It, it, it is the best. It is. Um, 99 was a bit of a, a landmark year for you because not only was it uh, your first Masters, indeed a Masters win, but it was also a Ryder Cup year. Uh, and you got to caddy in the, uh, well, let's say controversial Ryder Cup at Brookline. We'll always remember what happened there. And of course, you were pretty close to the action, weren't you? Caddying for Alathabal. He was up against Justin Leonard. We all know what happened, the scenes that followed Leonard's part on the 17th. What do you recall? Well, we had Miguel Angel Jimenez to thank for two of those matches because we played two four balls with him, and um, he was phenomenal. And Jose was trying his heart, he was trying his heart out, but he was struggling. You know, he was trying to find his game all week. That's why he only played three games. You know, because normally he would have always played. I think that was the first Ryder Cup where maybe he'd missed a game. I think he'd always played all five matches. Um, and it, it, he told you know, I, 
I think he pretty much said to Mark James himself, look, listen, you know, like, I'm not quite where I want to be and maybe you should play somebody else with Miguel, you know, and he actually remembered suggesting Podrick because we played with Podrick in practice and Podrick was playing really well. It was his first Ryder Cup. So, you know, so that's what they did. So um, Podrick played with Miguel in the foursomes and then we played with Miguel in the afternoon with the four balls. Um, and they did very well. You know, we won one and lost one. Uh, won one and halved one, sorry. And then obviously the Sunday halved again. And that singles match, um, you know, as I say, you were you had a, a close up, didn't you? You were you were with that game. You're that he was your man. And those scenes that followed. Do you do you have a personal take on it? Do you have any memories of? I mean, it was pretty crazy. I can remember a lot of it if I start thinking about it. But it was a great week. It's one of the great weeks. It's a privilege to have a chance to be involved as a caddy. Um, that was that was pretty special to actually just have a chance to do that. Uh, and I was with it, and I was with Jose, which was which was great. There was only two players in that team that had played more than one Ryder Cup. There was only him and Monty. Monty was the main man. Monty, it was Monty and him. They were the two main players, you know. So, but the funny thing about the Sunday, it's quite ironic, really. What, what happened on the seventeenth was on the fifth hole against Justin. We played with Justin a few times, you know. We knew Justin; he was really nice. And Bob, his caddy, was a nice fella too. Caddy for him for a long time. And um, but it's very tense. You know, you just is. We we're going up the fifth hole, and uh, Jose, a good shot in there. I'm sort of trying to get myself together a little bit actually, because we, we just made a half mistake on the previous hole, and thinking about trying to get this one right, and blah blah blah. And anyway, did that, which was great. And then Justin hit his shot to the green, and I never saw where his ball finished up. I was still walking up the other side of the fairway, so we walked up to the green, and I walked around the right hand side of the green, not on the green, but around the right hand side put my bag down and as I look back to around I'm thinking I wonder where Justin is I looked around and I just walked across his line Ooh. he was about three Ooh. or four yards off the green he was three or four yards off the green in the first cut of rough but even so I walked across his line you know but not on the green and I kind of thought oh my goodness what about that I thought I didn't see that there just didn't you know and Bob came up to me and wasn't very wasn't very impressed. And I straight away said, "I'm really sorry. I apologise. I didn't see it like that. I felt terrible." So they half the hole, and I walked as we walked off the tee, off the green. I said to Justin, "I said I'm really sorry, Justin." He said, "Listen, it's okay. No problem." He was like, "He was cool. He was like, no problem. Fine. I understand." And that was it. And then of course we get to 17, and you know what goes on there? The noise. I'd have to say the noise playing the 15th and the 16th was. I've never heard it that much noise, that continuous, where it never, it wasn't like a cheer. It was just a noise that just carried on the whole time. It was really odd. And you could literally, you had to shout at one another from a couple of yards to hear yourself. It was, I'd never experienced that before. You know, you hear a big loud cheer at a tournament, there's a few people, but not where it just kind of just goes on and on and on with, you know, chanting in USA. Yeah. Didn't, didn't Mark James call his book Into the Bear Pit? And, the, and how you're describing it, it kind of sounds a bit like that. It was rowdy. Yeah, it was rowdy. I mean, I, it was all new for me. I was a rookie. And a lot of the, I mean, there was a lot of experience in the caddy ranks. There was a lot of the cats, you know, uh, obviously, uh, Alistair McLean and Billy and Mickey Doran and, you know, Tim King and, and Ricky. There was loads of guys that had done Ryder Cups and President's Cups. So there was a lot of, they, they'd probably experienced it more than the, a lot of the players had, actually. Thinking back, thinking back to it, uh, I think the thing is that, that on, on a regular tournament, you can you can sometimes you can zone out the crowd, but at a Ryder Cup, I can imagine it's so difficult to 
to zone it out because it is so loud and 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 what not only that you, you your ears tend to pick up the odd comment from a from someone in the crowd but not really not when there's a lot of noise if you get the the, <laughs> the only time that you really heard something was because it was pretty rowdy but yes home advantage that's how it is you know that that's 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 how it is and we were walking up the 17th and it was the third time we played the 17th hole and we were in our usual little spot in the left hand rough there's a dog leg left. We're in the same little area every day. And it's quite close to the rope line. So we played first, I think, and hit a shot onto the green. We're literally in the literally in the downswing. And it was really in the downswing. I heard this someone or some people, it was definitely one person, maybe more, that had this horrible, pathetic put-on yawn, like a <laughs> Like that, you know, you put on a yawn. <laughs> it was one of them. And that's, that's, that's about hit the shot. He actually, you can see on the TV, he points his club up to the people. And I turned around and I said something to them on the grounds of, if you need to win that badly, that's pretty sad. You know, it, was, it, was, it wasn't good. And nobody said a word. Nobody said anything. So we walk up to the green and we've got a putt first. Uh, sorry, he's got a putt first, hasn't he? And he had about 40 feet, 40, 45 feet. And we probably had about... 25, 30 feet on the same line, amazingly, to this little plateau on the top where you had to putt up and it was like a big left to right putt going up the hill to a shallow little shelf from the top. Then we're all square, obviously. Uh, it's pretty much on the line. Payne Stewart and Monty were back in the fairway watching the whole thing because they were right behind us. So they were, they were the last game, I think, that was on the course. And Justin hit his putt. And um, as he hit his putt, I started to walk around behind him because I wanted to see the line for our putt. And I remember as it got, to, got sort of towards the top of the ridge and it started to break right, I kind of had this, mm, oh, I don't like the look of that. And it, it, was like it, was, it was like homing, it was like it was a tracer bullet homing in. I mean, it, was, it could have easily gone straight over the hole. It was going so quick. But anyway, it was one of those, it hit the middle of the hole straight in. I just, I just went, oh no, <laughs> to myself. And then all hell broke loose and they all start running around. You can understand it a bit, but it was a bit too much, obviously, because the game was still on. The game was still on. It wasn't the game wasn't over. If the game was over, and that was it, okay, he was one up, and they made that. That was it. Fine, but the game wasn't over. But the one thing is, nobody walked on the line. I never saw anybody walk on the line at all. Okay, well, that's good to, to, that you cleared that up, um, because I always wondered that. Pretty much everywhere else in the green, but not on the line. Yeah, good. Okay. Um, very quickly, some quick questions now. What caddy call are you most proud of in your career? And then give us a decision you'd love to have again. I mean, if I was going to pick out something, I'd say the 11th of Augusta on the Sunday with Jose. When he was like, we, it was very tricky. It was difficult, windy. Wind was messing around as it does there sometimes. And I pulled him off a shot, told him to stop. And he was like one or two seconds from hitting it. Because the wind had changed. You could see the, between the, what I was feeling and what the flags were. And you just kind of, it was an instinct thing. And I managed to actually, managed to find a bit of voice to say something. And, you know, and he stopped and he looked up at me and like, what the hell are you doing sort of thing. And uh, told him why. And he was like, okay, cool as must as he, as he always is. And then went back to it and, um, and hit a lovely shot, 30 feet, pin high right. Ended up hitting the same club in the end. But the way it changed, it wouldn't have been that club and it would have been it anyway. So that was, but the thing is, you could have done that and then he could have hit a bad shot. And then he's, oh, well, the caddy pulled him off that and that's why he hit a bad shot there. There was indecision there. Like, no, not at all. 
but it worked out. Sometimes you'd make the right call and it still doesn't work out. That's the thing with caddying. You know, you can do everything right, but it's what, it's what your man does in the end, you know. And tell us about the, have you got, a, have you got one you'd love to have again if, uh, if, if history gave you another shot? There's a few. If I was going to think of a couple, I'd think of Elazabal on the last hole of Valhalla, third round of the USPGA. And he, um, we were, if we par the last, we were going to shoot 63, which is the lowest round. And uh, we had a par five last hole. We couldn't quite go for so we were going to lay it up down the left because it was a tough little pin on a little shelf. And we hit the wrong club, second shot for the layup. And I remember trying to say something to him that I thought maybe we should get down there a bit further to make sure we get the sandwich in our hand, you know. And he was, and he was kind of no, no, no. And I, and I was annoyed with myself, just with myself, the fact that I wasn't more forceful to get him to hit because when we got down there, of course, it wasn't close enough for a sandwich. Had to hit a little wedge, which was the wrong, which was such so much harder because the chances were if we put it in a sandwich range at that moment, he'd have probably put it around the hole and he might have made birdie. And that would have given us more of a chance on the Sunday. So that was probably one, um, just from a layup, not even going to the green. The other one's probably Charlie Howe at Torrey Pines. And we had a chance to win and on the last hole, par five, laid it up and hit a shot that went straight into the hole, for which would have been an eagle. And as fast as it went into the hole, it came straight out the hole. You could hear that glunk noise, you know, when it goes straight in, straight out and spun back in the water. Oh, oh, no. No. <laughs> on the last hole of the golf tournament where no. if he'd made birdie if he'd made birdie on the last hole let's say it finished somewhere around the hole and he made a birdie we, we, we might have had a chance to win tiger one um but he made a great up he made a great up and down to from 85 yards then to make six and the finish tied second but that was one because you know it was i remember it was 95 and he's like a like a real soft little sand wedge to try and take the spin as much spin off it as we could Thinking back, I should have just said players a hundred pitch it five past the pin. Not the golfing gods. The golfing gods were not with you. Um, Brendan, Brendan, um, wanted to ask you. You're part of a group of cads raising funds for your fellow bag carriers in Asia and South Africa. Um, just tell us about the raffle draw that you're involved with. When the deadline is, some of the prizes, and how our listeners can maybe get a piece of the action and land one of these great prizes. Um, it's basically a few of the caddies, myself, uh, Billy Foster, uh, Zach Rosigo, Gareth Lord, Brian Nielsen, Jamie Lane, um, all the members of the association, ETCA, have donated. A lot of guys have donated prizes and have donated money already. ETCA is going to help with it, and it's to raise money for the Asian Tour Caddies and the Sunshine Tour Caddies Association. So we've had a bit of help. We've got a little bit of help from the tour. You know, it just pays a couple of bills. It's something. We didn't expect anything. Um, Ian Finnis uh, raised a lot of money, a huge amount of money, which also did the same thing. We shared amongst the ETCA members. So it just seemed like in these times where, uh, you know, things are very different all around the world. You know, we're here where we are, but there's, you know, there's a lot going on everywhere else. And, and we, we know them. We go to their countries. We're kind of, you know, we're kind of linked in with them. And um, I know the South African guys had a tiny bit of help, but that was nearly three months ago now. Um, and the Asian tour caddies haven't really had any. So we thought, well, why don't we try and do a draw and raise some money and so we can raise enough money to help them all pay a few bills, you know, so uh, members and 
players are starting to help. What are the prizes, Bren? And, and, and how do we get a bit of how do we get a bit of it? Uh, you can, the prizes are we've got a lot of signed flags, major winners, uh, some lovely equipment donated by uh, manufacturers, uh, clothing from Ryder Cups, different bits of memorabilia, Brilliant. butter covers, uh, signed caps, a lot of nice flags. Um, there's over 40 prizes. Um, if you wow. go to eurocaddies.com, yeah, eurocaddies.com, um, Euro there's a link on there to go to it or you can just go to the GoFundMe page obviously and if you just put in if you just put in Eurocaddies on the GoFundMe page it will come up straight away you'll, you'll see the whole thing uh, Billy Foster's part of it I mean he's he's got a he's got a link on his uh, on his Instagram which is uh, Billy66Foz I'm not sure why it's 66 I'm sure there's a reason Billy66Foz for him and it's on his front page and Frankie Molinari amongst a few others he's he's already posted a tweet and the links on uh, Frankie's tweet, which is nice. So we're just trying to get it out there now, and hopefully people can start donating and contributing, and maybe win themselves a lovely prize. How long have we got, Brendan, before the the draw is made? Just uh, give us the deadline. Well, we've made it now, Friday, second of July. Okay, so we've got a couple of weeks. So there's plenty of time for people to go on there, and you know, twenty pounds. Twenty pounds is for four entries it's five it's five pounds a ticket basically for it there you go keep up shut up listeners make sure you get on there and avail yourself of uh, a couple of tickets at least because there's some great prizes and before we let you go brendan obviously we're not yet back out on tour but there is a uk swing slated very soon for the european tour can you update us as to what the situation is for caddies um, and, and what you're expecting when you get back out there with gavin well, it's nice to be expecting something. That was a bit of a pick-me-up a couple of weeks ago when we actually got word that there was going to be some tournaments. Because obviously, none of us had any idea whether there'd be anything happening, you know, as far as the European tour was concerned. So they've set out a, a set of guidelines as a starting point, which they're obviously, you know, they're having to jump through all the hoops to, first of all, be allowed to do it. And the European tour, I can't imagine how much they've had to do with, with all of that to try and get it going, to get to a starting point. Um, so we're going to have six tournaments in the UK and, and there's going to be a lot of quarantining, if you like, going on with so that they can, so that they're allowed to go ahead and have a golf tournament. No crowds, obviously. I think we're all going to be staying on site to begin with. Um, you know, there's going to be testing going on at the beginning and end of every week, I believe. But it's a starting point. And I think as with the weeks move along, hopefully, as we start to gradually get back to a little bit of normality, that you know things will be relaxed a little bit so that things can operate better i guess well on, on on behalf of mike and myself when you do get back out on the tour let let us at keep up shut up wish you all the very best and similarly good luck with the fundraising and, and thank you very much for joining us bren uh, fascinating stuff thank you thanks tony thanks mike Okay, some fascinating stuff there from our caddy guest, Brendan McCartain. Some insights that really took us inside the ropes, which, after all, is what this podcast is designed to do. Now, to give us the player's perspective from the sharp end of Stacia Tour Golf, and a whole lot more besides, it's just about time to welcome David Shacklady. A few details. David has made a major impact on the Stacia Tour in a short space of time. His first full season, 2018, saw him come 11th in the overall rankings, thanks partly to a victory in Russia. Last season saw him scale even greater heights, recording wins at Hanbury Manor, 
and also in France on his way to finishing third in the final rankings. Without any more preamble, David, thank you very much for joining us. Um, you don't know what you've let yourself in for coming on Keep Up Shut Up, do you? Uh, yes, I do, because I've heard the other podcasts. But uh... <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, you, well you'll, you'll know what we're all about then. Firstly, thank you, as I say, for coming on. And Mike has uh, spent enough time getting ready for this interview. So, Mikey, I'm going to leave the stage to you and I'll just butt in from time to time. What we like to do, Shackers, is we like to go right the way back to the beginning to find out you know, how, how old were you and why did you get into golf? Let's start there. How old was I? Wow, probably 10 or 11, something like that, probably. Um, I, to, and purely down to uh, my, a group of friends that we all hung around with. Um, and I'd been on holiday, on a caravan in holiday with my best friend. And we returned home ready to meet the boys and go for a game of football to be informed that they were all into golf. Um, which came as a bit of a shock because none of them had golf clubs. But one of the lads' fathers was a, a bin man uh, and he picked up an old second bag of rubbish. And uh, we all used to fight in the way into the shed to get the best the best one and hack around the field. That's how I started. But we carried on. And, and we, you know, even at that age, I think we got a bit of a bug for it and we used to have our own competitions. And gradually when my dad realised that I wasn't, actually stopping um he'd always try it and we had a little go down at the local munis and off we went basically i, I mean presumably you were getting better and better as time went on and eventually you, you sort of you, you turned professional in the late 1980s so you, you know what you where, what were you doing in the in the late 1980s and what were your ambitions as a young pro uh well i was i went to work at Olmskirk golf club um uh, under the old pro there for I did about 18 months with him maybe a bit less before he retired um, but I'd never had a lesson in my life when I went to work there and uh, I was sort of self-taught and uh, I don't know I mean it's like anyone else isn't it you want to be on the telly you want to be winning tournaments but you know it's uh, it was a very naive view of golf I suppose um, but yeah I, I basically when when Jack Hammond came to work there as the head pro, he was he sort of gave me a much sort of greater understanding of pro golf and the PGA side of it. And you know, we basically sort of said, let's get the exam side of it and the qualification done, and then you can do what you want. Really, you know, you've got the backup of a qualification in the job and all the rest. So I did that with a priority, really, and I played you know minimal amounts if you like but it, but the required amounts and mm -hmm. uh, he basically then said to me once i qualified you know you, you're too good to be you know selling mars bars and hoovering shops you should play more i just went from there really yeah you know, un unlike many of your your sort of peers if you like on the stay short tour you were you were never a, a member of the european tour but it instead sort of spent 20 years plus uh, I mean, prolific is an understatement, but you're a prolific winner on the PGA North Region circuit. Were they enjoyable times? Were there, was there always a part of you that fuss, was a bit frustrated that you weren't competing on the main tour or were you just having a brilliant time in the PGA North? I think deep down inside you'd like to sort of think you're maybe going to have a crack at it. Um, but, uh, I mean, again, Cameron sort of encouraged me more and in fact fairly early on 
you know, encouraged me to enter the tour school, which I did do in in nineteen ninety ish, something like that. Um, and I, I managed to get through to it was at La Manga then, um, and I missed the four round cut, and I was clearly you know not ready for it. But I, I, learned, I took a lot out of it. I, I periodically, I maybe had two or three goals to it. Um, never really getting that far with it. Um, always getting to sort of second stage and then I got an alternate one year for the final stage. But it was it was something that I had in the back of my mind. But I, like you say, I was having a great time in the region because I was winning so much in, in regards to sort of the financial side of it. You know, back then there was quite a thriving scene on pro-amps, you know, county and regional levels. So, but you sort of, you know, I'd bank it all up and, and then you, obviously you come to the winter time and, you know, then all of a sudden that everything was uh, stopping. So, you know, it's a big decision to sort of think, well, yeah, I'm going to throw all that chunk of that going chasing the dream sort of thing. But uh, I think I think the thing that probably, well, not restricted me, sort of dissuaded me a little was the fact that I wasn't really getting any kind of an insight into any of it other than the odd, you know, I, I did qualify for Wentworth a few times and, that really gives, you know, you come away from things like that really wanting to be part of something like this. And then gradually that, that would sort of wane a little bit and the financial, you know, I've got to, I've got to win money to survive type thing takes back over again. And it's a difficult thing to jump from that far down to that high up. It is is a lot bigger than you actually imagine at first. Tellingly, you, you know, you were, you were good enough to qualify for the two open championships and, here you are in 1998 qualifying for the Open Championship. What was what, what was that like? Yeah, that was. Uh, I mean, that, that was a real. Uh, it was a daunting thing, but it was so exciting because obviously it was at Royal Birkdale and I lived 20 minutes away. So you know, it sort of ramped it up almost more because everybody I knew was you know following it. You know, far more. I got a lot of local coverage of it, of you know, press wise and everything else. You know, which I'd never, although I'd had write ups and things. This was this was another level. You know, um, and and of course, you know that that was sort of the you know the cream of the cream. There, I mean, I had played at well, I don't think I played at Wentworth. I maybe once at Wentworth before the year before, um, but you know. Tiger Woods was there, and you know, all of a sudden, it was it was ramped up again. You know, I, I, funny enough, it was the year after the first year I did Wentworth, um, and that particular year, I I got into the Compact Grand Prix at Slaley Hall and Wentworth, um, and then I qualified for Birkdale, and everyone was asking me, and and I said, well, uh, Wentworth made the Compact look like a North Region event. Uh, and I felt like, and I felt like the Open made Wentworth feel like Slaley, if you follow me. You know, it, it ramped up so hard, you know, because everyone was there, and it was, you know, you get it's hard not to get caught up in it. It's it's dreamland, really. You know, I mean, with the, the, the chauffeur-driven car, it's in your backyard as well. I mean, how do you deal with that? Well, I, do you know, I I, I think. I, I felt like I'd pushed it into the back of my mind a little, a lot, you know, everyone clearly, obviously, all wanting to, rooting for you. Um, and, and I think if I'd have thought about it 
over and over and over, I would have been even worse than I was probably. Um, but that, that that first tee shot is by far and away the most nervous I have probably ever been, you know, bar maybe tour schools or anything. But that that was generally, and, and I know I've heard a lot of people say things like this, but I just, my bad shot is to, is to sort of dip my knees and chunk it. And I actually tried to spin it <laughs> a two-iron. I thought that's my best option because I could see it duffing off the tee into the long grass and, you know. So, uh, but yeah, it was horrendous, horrendous for experience that first tee. And, and to be honest, I just, I, that, I carried it with me for the first sort of nine or ten holes and by which time I was like probably six over and that, the dream was already gone type thing. You know, it was a bit of a deflating experience back nine, but, but I'm, in a way, I suppose that gave me a chance to to take a bit more of it in and enjoy it a bit more, which I did. David, David, did um did nineteen ninety eight stand you in good stead though for when you return to play and qualify for a second open in two thousand and seven? Well, yes and no. Yes, definitely. Obviously, I, I you know I was older and I played a lot more and and obviously I did have all the memories of that. Um, but the, the ironic thing was the year I qualified at. Um, Carnoustie, uh, I, I wasn't playing. Well, I had no idea what I was doing, if I'm honest with you. Um, and I just I shot nine under and broke the course record in the final qualifying to, to end up winning it from way back. Um, and well, I got to uh, Carnoustie the following week or week and a half later, and it was blatantly obvious that I was. I don't know where that one had come from because I didn't really know what I was swing wise where I wasn't when I got up there I was struggling from the off really um, so and is not a great place to be when you're not going on the string you know so it was uh, it was a different experience altogether really I, I, th- I thought uh, I thought it played or suited me shall I say better than Burtdale did um, all the years earlier but I just didn't feel like I was playing well enough when I was there which is never a great sort of start to your week but I just couldn't seem to find anything that really clicked with me that week. And I think I, I never really threatened making the cut in that one, to be honest. But I, I mean, I had a lot of good fun, obviously. And just like you say, you learn all the time off stuff. Where did you finish in nine? Did you manage to um, threaten the cut in 98 from that from that poor start? 98, I finished, I think I missed the cut by four, which, to be honest, you know, shooting six over first round. I, I, the thing was, it blew on the Friday. Um, and uh, I, I played lovely, to be honest. I mean, I shot I shot seventy four, but it was a it was a stiff par seventy. To be fair, um, with a couple of par fours, I wasn't nearly reaching. So, it, you know, it was a pretty good effort, and I think I've I've almost banished it from my memory. But I was nowhere near. I think anything uh, that that one felt. But I mean, I you know, I had a few. I took a lot of good experiences away from it. I mean, I had a belter. Uh, I had a belted interview. I I, uh, I played behind and then in front of Justin Rose in '98, uh, which was obviously the year that he sort of burst on the scene. Um, and the last tee on the 18th at Burtdale, it's it, it plays like a dogleg from sort of left to right dogleg off the championship tee, and uh, he held a putt on the green behind at the top of my backswing, um, and I just carved it into waist eye rough. So I ate another. Um, and it was blatantly obvious I wasn't going to find it. So I basically went to the second ball but and hit a nice shot to about 25 feet on the green. And, of course, 
I said to my caddy, nobody knows that this isn't for a birdie because no one's seen my first shot that we're in the grand <laughs> And uh, oh, caddy, my mate Stasi was, was caddying for me and he just said, just don't leave it short. So, and, 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 and it went in, arms a lot, like I'd won it. Um, and uh, it was for a five, but the, <laughs> look, Northwest, the local news interviewed me and they were saying what a lovely way to finish and I never told them. Fast forward to 2017. So I guess for those those 10 years, you were still back out on the PGA North hoovering up prize checks like like some sort of bounty hunter. And then, I don't know, I don't know whether it was Louise or someone just said, why didn't you go to senior tour Q school? Well, what, you know, what made you give it a go in 2017? Through me, through me sort of mid to late 40s, I was still... Obviously, I was still winning in the region, um, but I was playing uh, some of the mini tours, 1836 tour against you know people a lot younger, and I was still winning stuff and holding my own. So it was, and of course, I was playing for me for me living anyway. And it was you know it was hard when you were putting up you know prize money that you you know you, you should I really put this much money into an entry fee and gamble against people younger? But it, you know it it makes you tough. So, yeah, yeah, you know, and I was, I mean, scoring, I, I felt was no different. Um, I, I didn't physically really feel any different. And I thought, I, I think I should have a, a bit of a go at this. And uh, I went to see a good friend of mine, Simon Edwards, uh, who had helped me sort of sporadically over the years when we roomed together with 10 minutes here and 10 minutes there. And I just said, look, I want to do it properly. I want to sit down and make a plan. This was in the November or or something like that um, and and really work and have a go at this when I was obviously coming up to my first go and uh, we sat down and I made a plan and come up with a few ideas and off we went and I just worked hard as I could at it and I felt I felt like I was I've got to be honest I felt like I was going to get my card um, which is I suppose you could say it's naive I don't know because obviously you know as, as well as anyone how tight it is when there's only five spots but uh, I, I genuinely felt that if I played anything like, I would get my card. But it just didn't quite quite come off. It nearly did, but it didn't quite. Yeah, but, I mean, you were so close. And, you know, I, I said earlier in the, in the pod that I, I've been to that, that Q school is, you know, in 30 minutes you can have a card or you can have absolutely no career. You know, it, it's, it, it's brutal. So, you know, to leave... Uh, Portugal in 2017 with absolutely nothing. I, I mean, how the hell did you you get yourself back up and uh, and and say to yourself, "I'm coming back in 2018"? How do you do it? I mean, some people would just give up. Yeah, you feel like it. I've got to be fair. Um, I I didn't probably realise how badly it affected me for a long time, actually, um, and it's. It was other people around me, and I, when I went back playing in the in the region, the county that sort of said, you know, it'd probably be this sort of this time of year, you know, maybe even into July before I was even competing back back where I'd started, you know. And I and I was thinking to me, I remember driving home from events thinking, I've just nearly had a seniors tour card, and now I, I can't make a top ten. Yeah, I, you know, I'd go home disgusted with myself if I didn't make top 10 in a, in a, in a region or a county event. And I, I, you did, I didn't put two and two together. And I honestly, I thought, no, it's not that. It can't be that. Because I, 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 
probably my biggest strength mental, you know, how tough I am. Um, but funny enough, Louise did, uh, did say something to me, that, and I'd forgotten all about it, actually. But at some point, not long after I'd come back, I, I did say to her, I will, I will get my card. If it, if it kills me, I'm going to get a card on that sort because it it really was, you know, horrendous to, to lose it in a playoff and, and just have to sit and watch it and wait for another year. But, uh, you know, again, you, you, le- you live and learn, don't you? But uh, I, think, I think the fear of going through that again probably was one of the biggest things I learned, to be honest. I think that was the thing that really substituted and then, of course, jump forward to 2018. You, you go in and you, you you get your card. And how life changing has that been? That earning of that card. I mean, the, the the trip home from Portugal was slightly different from the year before. You must have been absolutely made up with yourself. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and I don't think I've ever. I don't even know if I've told uh, Louise this, but um, I. I I listened to a song when the, the week I qualified for Carnoustie in 07 in the car uh, by by a group called the the which is this is the day and and I listened it just came on on the on my CD or whatever it was that was in the car that week and I, and I started to listen to it every day on the way to Carnoustie and I played it every day at tour school every morning. Um, and, it, and basically the line in it is, this is the day your life will surely change. And I thought, I'm going to, that's it. I'm going to use that all week, mm-hmm. every morning. The next morning when I got up, I thought, I'm going to listen to it again because I have my card. And and that's probably, I honestly, that is probably, that's the only time. I, I, I proper tears, it come out of me then. The next morning sat in the hotel, just listening to that in my room. And I'd done it at that point. But whether that was everything else that had gone before and the relief of it all, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, absolutely incredible trip home. I remember sitting in Faroe Airport with a Burger King crown on my head with Peter Scott. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, at that stage, all you wanted to do was earn a senior tour, uh, a stationary tour card. But And then, you know, the history books will show that you became... A tour winner in in Russia in August, you know that year two thousand eighteen. You beat, you know, you beat Phil Price. We know what Phil Price has done in the game. You beat Stephen Dodd. We know what he's done in the game. You know that putt goes in. You, you've got your card now. You've won a tour event. I mean, how long does it take before something like that sinks in? Oh, do you know? I, I'm not sure. Um, it was funny because. And and fair play to him, but Simon, Simon Edwards, who coaches me, he said, you'll win. You'll win this year. And, uh, you know, part of me wanted to believe it, but part of me, I think, didn't want to get myself too, a bit like we were saying earlier about qualifying for Opens and, and trying not let yourself get carried away and build pressure upon yourself, which I felt like I had done at the early events through the season because I was obviously trying to find my feet, trying to, you never really know where you're going to fit and where your game is compared to some of these people that you've, that you've watched all your life on the TV. So gradually I'd become a bit more confident and I'd started to play a bit better and relax a bit more. And uh, that week in Russia, I just went further and further. You know, I got better every day um, to a point where I, I had it on a piece of string, to be honest. I knew I was hitting virtually every shot that I wanted to hit. Um, but I don't know... 
I'm not sure when, when it was actually seen. I still think about it now, if I'm honest with you. You know, but, but to do it to do it against them two, you know, down down the stretch and hold them off around that back nine was. Uh, I felt I was amazed how calm I felt, to be honest. You know, I've been more nervous at North Region events. I've got to be honest with you. I don't know why. I don't know what happened, but uh, I found some way of just staying absolutely level and never really getting very edgy at all, to be honest. You know, to cement your credentials, you then win twice in 2019. And you won at Hanbury Manor, then you won at the Paris Legends. Again, I, I just I had a nice little run going into Hanbury. Uh, I was playing well. And then Simon came down and spent the Pro-Am day with me. We did a few hours on the range coaching and he walked around the Pro-Am. Um, and uh, he said to his son on the way home, Ollie, um, if, he, if he swings it like that, he'll win this week. Now, and he didn't tell me that, but uh, I, was, I was playing well. Um, and I'd played well the year before there, to be honest. And I, I actually, I thought I was going to win it the year before. And I got right up there sort of mid, towards the end of the second day and then just, just fell away a little bit and still finished pretty high up. Uh, I just felt like the course suited me. I liked it there. And I was playing well. And, and you know, I just, as you know, I mean, we had a, we had a, a right good ding dong on that that, uh, that last day on the back nine. I've got to be totally honest with you, Shaq, because I thought we had you. I thought we had you about 14, 15. I thought you were down and, <laughs> down and out. <laughs> right, you two. Before you, before you recall every single shot between the pair of you down the stretch, I'm going to intervene here, Shackers, and I'm going to ask you, you've had two fantastic years on the tour. You came third last year, as I said, when I introduced you on the Order of Merit. And what I'm trying to say is, have you exceeded your expectations? Or did you think, yes, I know I've not been a tour player, but I truly believe I'm going to go out there and at least match what these guys can do at this stage of our respective lives? You know, if you'd have told me this two, two years prior, I, I don't know whether I'd have believed a word of it. But, you know, I'd have loved it to have been true. But I don't know whether I'd have dared with it. But, uh, yeah, it, it's just, it, it is a dream. I've got to be honest, but but it's a dream that I've got sort of some control of, which is which is the nice part of it. But would there ever have been a part of you um, that ever... That just in the early weeks and months that just questioned whether and and forgive me here whether you you quite belonged alongside major champions Ryder Cup players was there ever because obviously you were a seasoned PGA professional who'd made his living primarily through the North Region circuit just was there ever a moment where you thought to yourself crikey you know there's let's say, Bernard Langer over there or Jose Maria Alathabal or, or any of these other great guys that have played tour golf for 20, 30 years. Was there ever a moment where you thought, do, do I also belong on this stage? I think anyone that, that, that had come from, you know, my side of the tracks, as it were, you know, coming up, up levels to play against these guys, I, I think you'd be a liar if you didn't think that maybe I hope I am good enough and, and will I be good enough? Um but it's funny, I likened it to, um, I used to play a lot of darts and then I got to, I got half decent and, and then started playing with some of the lads that are now on TV and, and, and have won world championships. And once I got past playing darts against the person, I actually, you know, could give them a really good game. 
And and I, I think that was very similar on the go. You know, yeah, I was sort of going, oh, well, there's Ian Woosnam, there's, there's whoever. There's, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, they were so friendly, uh, you know. And, and again, that's one of, one of, one of my memories at Sharjah. Um, Roger Chapman came over and said, you know, congratulations, I hope you do well. James Kingston did the same, Barry Lane. You know, and, and he's sitting there thinking, has that really just happened? You know, and I, I can't wait to can't wait to phone home and, you know, you'll never believe who come to, you know, come to talk to me today. <laughs> but, you know, these guys are all now really good friends of mine. But, you know, at the time, that that did help and that was lovely of them to do, you know. Um, I did know some people out there, but, uh, you know, the one thing that I would say about me is that whatever side of that might have started to creep in my mind, the, the you know the, the pig-headedness in me wouldn't let it. I, I, I would want it. You know, I, the, determ- I, the determination to survive out there was 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 absolutely the number one goal, and and, and always will be to, to to be there again the following season for me. You know, it's uh, it's a slightly different angle that we come from because. I haven't had a career earnings category or anything, so so I'm not going to really get exemption as such. Sure. So I've got, I've got to keep earning it. So, you know, and to be honest, if that keeps me on my toes and makes me as hard as I can be every year, then, then that, so be it. I, that's, I've done that all my life anyway. But in the same way that you learnt to play the board, not the data, you've learnt presumably pretty quickly to play the course rather than look across and see Ian Woosnam. Correct. Yeah, exactly that, really. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough through this to sort of, I, I've been paired with Paul Laurie, I've been, play, I've been paired with uh, Miguel Jimenez, um, you know, and Brody and a few others. And, and to be honest, it's just, it, it doesn't bother me uh, at all, you know. In fact, it's, um, well, one, holding your own, but two is the fact that they're just, they're nice people that are the chat, you know, it's, it's no different. Obviously, it's a bit. It's, I want to say it's a bit more serious, but you know, you are playing for some good prizes, and everyone wants to win. But uh, you know, I do have to pinch myself quite often, and I still think back to so many different occasions. You know, oh my word, I play golf and chatting with him, trying to think. You know, it, I remember watching all the various different people's greatest moments sat at home. That's how I knew them. You know, you know that's why your story is so fascinating because one minute you're you're playing tournaments to put literally put food on the table, and then the next minute you 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 know you're winning hundreds and hundreds of tournaments. Then you're then you're not getting a card. Then you get a card. Then you win once and think this is la la land. Then you win another two times. In the years between losing my card and then getting the two months November December going to the second tour school I went to, I, I packed in and worked for UPS. I never touched the golf club. That was me done, really. Um, and Louise, you know, basically said, come on, you've got to have another go. Uh, well, I'd won in Russia, and the first year we played Hambury, as you know, the driveway goes through, and I was lining up a putt on, I think it's uh, 16, the par three, and Louise and the kids were there, and, and I just pointed behind her, and she looked behind her, and there was a UPS van driving into the golf club, and I thought, less than, less than eight months ago, I was, on, I was in one of them. It, it's been absolutely brilliant having you on the on the pod. We've loved we've loved having you. I mean, Tony, have you got any 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 last final questions for Shackers? Well, just uh, just to add to what you've said, a pleasure to have you join us. And I must just ask: you mentioned that you played darts with a couple of the top boys. Can you give us uh, a little bit of uh, a bit further insight there? Who have you stood on the hockey alongside Shackers? 
I ended up going to uh, playing in the, for County Lancashire and stuff. But uh, on the way up to sort of getting to that, I played in a few money tournaments. And uh, I, I've never done anything like that before. But I, I was always good at it as a kid. So um, I ended up playing with uh, Stephen Bunting, who, who won the Lakeside. And then Dave Chisnell, Mike Smith. Um, I played Bristow. Wow. Ted Anke, all of that. I, I, you know, some of those were exhibitions, but some were in, it was somewhere in the local leagues in St. Helens. They had some, I mean, there are some great players still, obviously, them three are still doing very well in the PDC now. But, uh, yeah, I've had a couple of nine darters. I was quite good in my day. There we go. A couple of nine darters. It could have been a different route for you rather than the fairways. You could be uh, playing, playing darts for a living by the sound of it. Yeah, a couple. Yeah, I'll tell you the one thing I forgot to mention, Lama. Just in uh, in in honour in honour of you, I, I'm have to have to back up so you can see. Throughout the uh, the chat, I I have actually been wearing uh, Butchoy Classics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to wear Footjoy Classics. Very good. I thought I'd better dig them out. I'm going to ask here, I'm going to ask Shackers, one day, one day, you two are destined to walk along the fairways next to one another, aren't you? Surely one day Lama's going to be on your bag. You get on too well not for it, for it not to happen one day. I want to, I want to, I want to take Shackers on for money. What, on the darts board? Oh, well, I mean, what we'll do is we'll have 18 holes and then we'll go and play darts. I'll, I'll take him out in both of them because I know, I know if I just squirt a little bit of, blood around he's he's, he's gone he's hopeless <laughs> is this true i've survived worse than that mate even lying nothing's nothing's knocked me down yet well i'll tell you what we will leave it there a pleasure to have you on and thank you so much for coming on and shooting the breeze we'll see you down the road shackers absolute pleasure yeah hopefully sooner rather than later right? wow mikey two great guests today um yeah, what a story there from from Shackers. I'm going to tell you my best bit was learning that he was uh, an almost star named Data. Never knew that before. What are the best bits that you'll take away from our latest episode, either the Brendan stuff or or from your great mate Shackers? Anything in there? Oh, just so much to take away. But you know, I'm I'm a really good friend of Shackers, as you know, and and he's one of those guys that we all know somebody who who through grit and determination can can win at anything whether it be darts football tennis golf and he's, he's a great he's a great asset to the stage short tour he's a really good guy and of course you know stories that brendan was coming out with uh caddying fantastic it's been a good it's been a good one this one time mikey before i call time on it uh you've probably got a pearl of wit and wisdom that you haven't yet shared with us what have you got up your sleeve we've only got we've only got time for a little bit of breaking news but it's it's quite a big one, Tony, I have to tell you. I mean, here at uh, Keep Up Shut Up Towers, word has filtered through that one of the Stacial Tour's biggest names has suffered a rather nasty bike accident. Oh, dear. Go ahead. Yeah, we hear that he's in stitches, uh, mainly on the hand, but the stitches have been required to a, to a difficult hand injury. And he's got, he's got very soft hands when he does a bit of chipping, so it'd be devastating. And he's a West Ham supporter. Uh, but he won't be picking up the clubs for a few weeks, and um, you know we'll we'll obviously catch up with him and get the full story in uh, in the fullness of time. 
Well, actually, we will, because he's joining us, said guest, on episode five. We'll keep it as a bit of a pot boiler. Suffice to say, as you did, that he is a West Ham fan, so he's surely in for more misery now that the Premier League is back with us. He'll come on and talk to us about his beloved Hammers and his ailing hand in episode five. Um, lastly, I would just like to sign out by thanking our unsung hero, Carl, from Cambridge TV, uh, for another doubtless production and sound masterclass. Uh, remember, you can catch all our past episodes via your usual pod provider, and you can hear all our latest news by following us on Twitter at Keep Up Shut Up. Also, please subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode, and make sure you rate us with five stars. We'll be back in a few weeks, hopefully with news of when we may be seeing some action but definitely with that big-name guest that we've just alluded to. There'll be a blend of great golf insights and light-hearted chat, as always. Until then, Mikey, what are we saying? See you on, folks. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.